Welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Dr. Charles Goldman. I'm guest hosting today for Ed. And thanks to our home station, La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. I'd also like to thank our other stations around the country that rebroadcast our show, including KHOI 89.1 in Ames, KICI 105.3 FM in Iowa City, KPIP 94.7 FM in Fayette, Missouri, and WHIV 102.3 FM in New Orleans, Louisiana. You can also listen to the Fallon Forum online or as a podcast at www.fallonforum.com. So let's thank some of our business partners here in the Des Moines area, Gateway Market and Cafe at 20th and Woodland in the Sherman Hill neighborhood. That's Ed's Grocery Store with a wonderful cafe for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has an excellent catering service. That's the Gateway Market and Cafe. Diversity Insurance at 1541 East Grand Avenue in Des Moines for your home, car, property, and life insurance. Stop by. No appointment necessary. Community CPA with offices in Des Moines, Iowa. And, I'm sorry, in Des Moines and Iowa City. And for all of your tax and accounting needs as April 15th uh, looms uh, just ahead. Cinco de Mayo, restaurant on Southeast 14th Street in Des Moines, serving authentic Mexican food with great service at affordable prices. So today, uh, my guest uh, for most of the show is going to be my brother, Dr. Stephen Goldman. We will not be talking about the Patriots because Ed's not here. But we will be talking about something that is appearing almost daily uh, in the political discourse around uh, the United States, and that's socialism. Uh, if you'd like to join in the conversation, uh, you can call us at 515-528-8122. That's 515-528-8122. So uh, I guess we should check to see if uh, Dr. Goldman is uh, on the line. I'm right here. Good. So, um, uh, you know, as you and I have spoken about, I mean, I, I guess just a, a brief uh, news bite to set this up. Um Chris Stewart, who's a uh, Utah representative, Republican representative in the uh, House of Representatives, uh, is evidently forming an anti-socialism caucus in Congress because this caucus, as he said, will defend individual liberty and free markets and highlight the dark history of socialism. So since we're talking history, uh, and I'd like to start with the history of socialism, not go right to the issue of uh, the election you know, looming in 2020. Uh, and since you're my favorite historian, uh, can we talk a little bit about uh, the history of socialism as a political movement in this country? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic. And uh, it's interesting that we're getting more discussion of this now, when in the last few years we've had some, actually some very good documentaries. And, um, you know, one that you and I talk a lot about was the great documentary about a year ago on PBS about World War One, particularly World War One in the United States, and focused on the suppression, uh, including frank jailing of many of the socialist and labor leaders in the United States under the guise of their refusal to um, support the war, World War One. And, um, you know, in going over the material and preparing for what you and I are doing today, I, th I think we need to clarify some terms. And I think we also need to clarify that I think in going over a lot of the material that I think 
perhaps some of the more pejorative views on socialism in the United States are still very much influenced by what happened during World War One. Um, you know, the Sedition Acts, the jailing of Eugene Debs. I, I, I think you're giving the American people way too much credit because Americans are poorly educated as to the history beyond 10 or 15 years ago. But nevertheless, uh, I'll go along with that. Maybe for people who are older. Yeah, well, but I, I think there's an element there because um, it's, again, given what you just said from the representative from Utah, it's, it's ironic it's Utah, where, of course, Joe Hill was, was um, executed when uh, a lot of the unions and the labor movement was about the mines, both in Colorado and Utah. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the, the um, demonization of socialism does spring from the aspects of making it seem to be an anti-American movement. That's the point I was trying to make, Charles. And I, I think you're hearing that now. And I think that's one of the aspects. And I do think it harkens back to this, to this, this fear of socialism and it's, it's making it into something it, it never was in the United States because these, the socialists and the labor movement in the United States were different in other countries. Well, and I, yeah, and I think, I, I think the irony is, is that uh, socialism, in many ways, socialist ideas saved American capitalism coming out of the 1930s. Do you, do you have do you have the the podcast on behind you or something? Because it sounds no, like it's like no, I haven't got anything. Okay, on okay, yeah. So uh, maybe if you can talk a little bit about you know the turn of the nineteenth century coming into the twentieth century and and really how socialism is a, is about the labor movement we've all grown up with, uh, not a radical although there are elements of it as you'll point out, uh, not a radical uh, assault on American democracy or even capitalism. And again, that's a very good point. I, I think we have to recognize that you had different factions. Um, you had socialist. I mean, the, one of the great things about the IWW, the Wobblies, was they were more of an umbrella organization for socialists, Marxists, um, uh, unionists. Um, they also, the IWW was unique because it was one of the only organizations involving with labor in the turn of the 20th century that had every ethnic group, religious group, and people of color. And they were part of them, whereas a lot of the unions were white, or strictly white, didn't have women associated with it. That great article in New York about Debs pointed out how he had to so carefully um, parse out that while he wanted African-Americans in the movement, he talked about not associating as opposed to standing with them when it came to um, um, to their rights as laborers, uh, even though, of course, that did change over time. You, William James Bryan, you know, the great populist, uh, had some of the most unfortunate racial beliefs at that time. So I think that what we saw at the end of the 19th, uh, the 1800s, the turn of the century, 20th century, was a concatenation of a lot of things that had gone on, things that had failed, Reconstruction, unionism, there had been terrible violence associated with putting down strikes. There had been violence associated with, with also anarchists. And again, I think that these types of things have labeled socialism in a way that is kind of antithetical to where the movement really was going. 
And that's why I did want to mention that. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about, I mean, what were conditions like in particularly the mines and the railroads that um, were, you know, personified the kind of uh, capitalism that was being practiced uh, at the time and continues in some ways to be practiced at this time? Yeah, that, that's a very good point. Uh, you had ownership. I mean, and you, you have to link the mines with the railroads because um, obviously the mines were producing the, you know, the tremendous uh, fossil fuels, in particular anthracite mines and other mines, but they had to also be shipped. So you had to, you know, of course, had the railroads doing the shipping along with things along um, canals and other ways, but you had dual ownership. You had some of the same people owning the mines as owning the railroads. So you clearly had a monopoly. You clearly had robber barons. Um, again, it's funny how things don't change. You had tremendous wealth being concentrated in the hands of a few. Mm-hmm. You had a government that at that point was certainly hostile to the concept of um, um, negotiating with unions. They, I mean, the government had called out the, um, the army to break strikes. There was nothing even close to what would happen during the 20th century in relation to workers' rights, um, you know, limits on, on labor, no child labor laws, um, any kind of health care. You had people earning just enough money to put their money back into the company's stores and could never accumulate any wealth at all, other than the fact that they would be working seven days a week. I mean, those were the conditions. There was so little protection for, for people working, uh, whether skilled or not. And um, the government was not, was not a force that was looking out for the welfare of, of, of workers in terms of that. No, I mean, they helped put down most of these strikes at the mines or uh, on the railroads. That's correct. And, of course, they brought in scabs. Right. Brought in other people in terms of that. Who, was, unfortunately, oftentimes were African Americans. That's correct. Which, so, yet again, you were pitting workers against each other. And, of course, all you needed to do, whether it was the 1870s or the 1900s or the 1950s, was to pit Americans against each other and to force that kind of uh, racism that was there and then to make it economic racism associated with that. That's a very good point you're making. And, you know, this is, this is all tied up in the difficulty in trying to make clear to people in 2019 that American socialism, per se, is not was not designed. I mean, we read, when we read about devs, we read about the IWW and other places. They weren't seeking to place factories under government control. That wasn't what they were looking for. They were looking for a, a way of having workers' rights being implemented by having wages that were decent wages to enable people to have decent housing, to separate their jobs from their entire lives being controlled by the people who own the mines or own the railroads or own the factories. Uh, the fact that you had to have, um, you, you can't work seven days a week, you know, 10 hours a day. I mean, we, those of us who have been down uh, outside of Scranton, there's a, there are amazing museums there about, about the mines and other places. We could actually go into what was a working mine, and you can't believe that human beings spent 30, 40, 50 years, seven, six or seven days a week under those conditions, it's mind-boggling what those conditions were like. 
You had no OSHA. You had no protection of workers. Yeah. Well, well I think let's take a break, um, and we'll go back to um, we'll go back to maybe the 1920s, which really looks a lot like the 2010s, and then of course the the total collapse of capitalism, and where socialism really steps in, and unfortunately, in some ways, saves us. So that capitalism can reestablish itself and go right back to the same path it took uh, in the late uh, 1800s. So um, this is Dr. Charles Goldman. We'll be back in a minute uh, at the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns, someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price every time. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 515-246-8149. That's 515 515- Two four six eight one four nine. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant... Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766.
to the Fallon Forum. This is Dr. Charles Goldman sitting in for Ed, who's off on his book tour. And uh, here with me on the phone is my brother, Dr. Stephen Goldman, uh, psychiatrist slash historian. And we're discussing uh, socialism and trying to put it in some sort of context other than as a uh, soundbite being used predominantly by the Republicans and also uh, MSNBC and Fox News to uh, categorize in a negative way uh, certain members of the uh, Democratic Party. Uh, so, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's you know, come forward to – and it's really interesting if, if people read, you know, Debs or if they can get the speeches that uh, uh, Sanders – Senator Sanders at one time read uh, the, uh, some audio book, I guess, of Debs' speeches. Um, you would be, you know, surprised to see that the issues at that time were very much the same. Um, not so much the company store issues where, you know, the company you work for, basically you paid rent and you bought items from that store and they would lower your wages and keep the prices and the rents at the same price. So, of course, you even got further behind. But the issue of income inequality, the fact that the the worker supposedly in capitalism has, has a capital to sell their labor, but of course, by, as you said, uh, playing off one group against another, in particular the racial groups, you were able to really undercut the power of the worker. Um, let's let's come up to the 1920s because, uh, in many ways, the uh, Great Depression um, is what changes the Democratic Party because they become the party of Roosevelt and the New Deal, um, and akin to what happened in 2008. We call it a recession, but it was quite a recession. And once again, capitalism showed its failure. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about you know the history as we traverse the 1920s into the New Deal period? Okay. And uh, by the way, if, if anyone wants to read about this absolutely fascinating history, um, any of the phoners, uh, Jack, Philip, or Eric, um, th- their work is, and particularly Eric's dad, uh, Philip Foner's uh, books on labor are absolutely fascinating. And that is uh, F-O-N-E-R? Is how they spell yes. it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, Eric's the great um, Reconstruction um, uh, historian. historian, but his dad and his uncle were great labor historians. Um, let, let me just put in context. The, the early, the, the, the immediate and early 20s, 1920s, post-World War I period was the crackdown on labor. And a lot of that was the absolute fear, the Red Scare, was the fear of what had gone on in, in Russia and in Europe. And uh, the reaction in the United States was to crack down on labor, because they were terrified of the same thing happening in the United States that had happened in Europe and, and Russia. I do want to make that point. Mm-hmm. That's how you got organized labor being taught as communists. And the idea that um, organization was somehow anti-American. And again, I do think this still resonates for now. You ended up with um, economic conditions in the United States, certainly during, I mean, where capitalism itself was, as we know, teetering, certainly with the crash and what had gone on. And there had been signs before then. You had a situation in the United States Ironically enough, where when FDR came in, where people turned to some of the very concepts that have been talked about for decades on, through the labor movement, and particularly some of the more socialistic aspects of it, um, any kind of social programs, um, the WPA, you know, the work, the work, um, 
the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, uh, where you had people where the government was now viewed as activist itself in relation to its responsibility to the people of the country. And um, things started to come into place because they were desperate. I mean, there were literally people, people dying, people uh, I mean, uh, dying on the streets. You had the Dust Bowl situation where there were entire states where um, crops weren't being produced. And so you were forced into doing radical things that were basically not in really any philosophical way all that different than what had been done. Uh, using socialistic principles, and of course, most of them worked. Right. I mean, in fact, um, uh, Norman Thomas, who uh, ran on the socialist ticket in 1932 against FDR, um, garnered almost a million votes nationwide. And actually, ironically, uh, how Wisconsin has changed, uh, he actually got the highest percentage of the total vote in Wisconsin, uh, a state that actually has a fairly strong history of uh, socialism being part of the right. politics well into the later part of the 1900s. And FDR meets with Thomas after the election and basically borrowed a lot of the proposals that Thomas had made. Social Security, yeah. unemployment compensation, strengthening labor unions, public works projects. Um, and, you know, that, that I agree with you, is in, instead of associating socialism with either communism vis-a-vis -vis the 1950s, or communism vis-a-vis -vis the 1920s, the tradition of socialism is one that, you, if the American worker understood it, um, they should be very much down with. Yeah, it's it's, and again, it's, I mean, it's the it's the mistaken equalization or or the parallelism of communism and socialism. They're very different, and uh, the concepts are different. The implementation is different. Um, you have, and again, this is, when we talk about American socialism, or the, it's, it doesn't look like it is in other places. And it's done within the context of a, um, of a capitalistic system. But I think that at its best, um, Social Security, um, uh, having an OSHA to protect workers, um, to having um, an FAA, to protect uh, airline safety, things like that. At FDA, where I worked for six and a half years, uh, you were in the military for 20 years. You know, why, why don't people find it strange and socialistic, if you will, that only one country in the world has a health care system designed strictly for veterans? That's the United States. We have a VA. No other no country has that. And it's funny that people... Well, but we're also a country that, that put down demands violently put down demands by veterans in the past yes. for their due. Yes, that's correct. Well, including great heroes like uh, MacArthur and, uh, and George Patton. Uh, yes, well, and again, if people don't know about that with the, with the bonus armies and what happened with that, you know, unfortunately this history has a terror, our country has a history of violent suppression of ideas that it finds troubling that it doesn't understand. It does have a history, as do other countries, of pitting people against each other in order to maintain the social order. I mean, I, I, Charles, I think we do have to understand that people were terrified about what happened in Europe and the Soviet Union, and they were convinced that there was going to be, uh, 
you know, socialism is going to take over in the United States. Yeah, could, so, you, could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, you know, uh, this Utah representative is able, based on some limited number of events, to say that socialism has a dark history in the United States. I mean, what would those be? Well, you know, again, he's lumping in, I mean, yes, there were anarchists. Yes, there was violence. That wasn't part of the Socialistic Party, but you had, again, the the, the IWW was more the umbrella of, like the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party has, like almost anyone under their umbrella. Right. You had a mix of, and by the way, these groups did not get along. Right? There were two socialist parties in the United States. Yeah. Parties in the United States. Um, and even though it was, it was a Hollywood film, there's a pretty good depiction of it in Reds. You know, the story of Jack Reed. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a lot of it was nationalism. A lot of it was um, the distinction between skilled labor versus unskilled labor. I mean, if you want to, if you want to look at uh, the um, civil rights movement, one of the one of the most important figures I hope people remember is Philip Randolph, mm-hmm. you know, who ran who ran the Pullman Union. In terms of that, and uh, I mean, Randolph was critical to both the labor movement and the movement for African Americans, and finally being able to get a working wage as porters. You know, on the, on the railroads in terms of that. So I, I think that the fear, as usual, was based in a lack of understanding and ignorance and, frankly, a political, a political use of these things to foment those kinds of divisions to maintain the status quo and to ignore the issues under which people were trying to change things. I mean, you had – unfortunately, human beings seem to always need a disaster – Mm-hmm. Child labor laws start. I mean, worker laws start coming to place when what happens yeah. when over triangle right, shirt, uh, right, yeah, fire, fire, fire yeah. right, right, where uh, what over a hundred mostly young um, Jewish women died in a fire that that never should have taken place in relation to that. Yeah. Well, I think uh, uh, you know, we're going to have to take a break here in a minute. I think sure. the the other thing to understand is that you know uh, somehow the American dream freedom is tied up in capitalism. Ironically, one of the largest social programs, which is clearly a socialist program, is Medicare. And Medicare is, in fact, the greatest tool for freedom that everyone who's, you know, who was born baby boomer afterwards have because they don't have to take care of the health costs of their parents. I mean, think about a world in which you would have to pay the health costs of your parents. Uh, you know, but again, it, it, it's people just don't see things in in the way that you think they would see them. Um, but and obviously, a lot of that is the influence of the superficiality of teaching civics in the United States, Fox News, and all the other things that go on. But anyway, let's let's come back after the break and talk a little bit about what should the Democrats do with this uh, whole labeling that's going on uh, that they're governed by a socialistic left wing led by uh, AOC. Okay? Okay. (laughs) All right. So uh, we're going to take a break here. It's Dr. Charles Goldman for the Fallon Forum. Welcome back to the final segment of today's Fallon Forum. This is Dr. Charles Goldman sitting in for Ed. I'd like to thank a few of the local businesses that make the Fallon Forum possible. Gateway Market and Cafe at 20th and Woodland, Sherman Hill Neighborhood. 
As you know, that's Ed's Grocery Store, has a wonderful cafe for breakfast, lunch, and supper, and also an excellent catering, catering service. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Sergeant's Garage at 6th Avenue and College Street in Des Moines, just up the street from uh, Mercy Hospital, where you'll also get an honest assessment at a fair price every time. Hawk Restaurant in the East Village, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farmers and producers, even in the dead of winter. Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been taking care of critters big and small for over 30 years. Our guest uh, for this last segment, again, is my brother, Dr. Stephen Goldman, uh, historian as well as psychiatrist. And we are talking um, about socialism. And I'm going to read something to uh, my brother and ask if he can figure out who said this. Uh, I find Donald Trump reprehensible as a human being, but a socialist candidate is more dangerous to this company, uh, a, a country, as far as the strength and well-being of the country than Donald Trump. I would vote for Donald Trump, a despicable human being, in, in lieu of a socialist Democratic presidential candidate. Now, who said that? <laughs> <laughs> you want to give me a hand? Uh, MSNBC commentator. Oh, M- oh, God, uh, Wallace. No, not Chris Wallace. He might have said that, but no, it was Don- it's Donnie Deutsch, you know, the advertising oh. executive who's on oh, morning God, yeah. with okay. Morning Joe. Okay, so I think that's a great place to start. Um, if you if you listen to the purported um, far left or liberal station MSNBC. Um, Particularly uh, in the morning, uh, you you would be stunned by some of the things that get said. Uh, uh, the candidate uh, Hickenlooper from uh, Colorado, yeah, it was barraged by Morning Joe about whether he would does he believe in capitalism, um, and they go on this this whole thing. You know, they're all petrified of socialism, and that's why Bernie Sanders can't be the candidate, and. Um, you know, they're they're always talking about that the Democrats are missing the fact that they need to have somebody who's centrist and not to the left of the mainstream. And, of course, as whenever they talk about the left in the mainstream, it's the odd couple, Bernie Sanders and AOC. So um, what's your take on where the socialism issue is going to fit in the 2020 election, which is, it undoubtedly is going to be an issue? circular firing squad that is a Democrat. Well, that's what Obama said uh, evidently two days ago. Yeah. Well, he didn't coin that. That's that's an old term. It actually goes back to Thomas Nast. Oh, I thought Donald uh, Trump had coined that. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Well, it's, of course, Will Rogers' favorite comment. I'm, not, I'm a member of no organized political party. I'm a Democrat. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Uh, I think that I think that they should do what John Kerry should have done when a decorated veteran, a man of great integrity, was swift voted. He should, and he said it in his book, he should have gone right at it. Mm-hmm. He should never have listened to his political advisors that he should not respond. He should have responded. And he should have gone directly for it. I think the Democrats should very simply list all the pieces of legislation, all the things we're mentioning. Including, by the way, the SEC. Don't forget, uh, Roosevelt brought in an SEC after the stock market crashed. Mm-hmm. And, inst- and, and who did he put in charge of it in the beginning? Joseph Kennedy. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> a 
allegedly the comment was, uh, it takes a thief to catch a thief. Well, right, exactly. I mean, and if you remember, that was very similar to what President Trump said during the campaign, is that he, he would be great on tax policy because he totally understands how not to pay any. <laughs> so I, I would literally list all the things we're talking about. Uh, and by the way, um, you know, Richard Nixon... Uh, I have to say, I have to say, in, I'm not going to say Richard Nixon's defense, because I won't defend Richard Nixon, but the EPA came in under Nixon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, clean water and other things in relation to that. If I would, I would brand those as concepts that are based in socialist precepts. And you list the whole gamut of them, including Medicare and Social Security and, Medi- and state Medicaid and um, protection of water protection of the air, monitoring uh, safety in so many different ways. And you make it clear that that's what these things spring from. Yeah. And, well, I feel like you're going to have to be like Ross Perot up there with like a, a whiteboard. You know? Well, but, the, but there's nothing, you want something, there's nothing wrong with that. I think if Obama had done that with the Affordable Care Act, people might have understood it better. I mean, he never once got on television. I have to say this, Ronald Reagan who I hold very little truck with, Reagan was a communicator. Mm-hmm. And he tried to explain things. I mean, you can't, you know, this, this isn't a university. This is, this, is, this is free ideas in a free society. You have to explain why things matter. You have to explain how they impact the, the, you know, all Americans. You have to explain why these things exist, why they need to continue. Why Obamacare is so much better than not having available health care to people who are not eligible for Medicare or Medicaid or the VA. And um, I really, I, I still think the American people can be, things can be explained in a way that it does make it clear how it affects them personally, how it affects, I mean, you made a great point. Uh, I mean, we, we all have parents. And aging parents, and particularly in a society, I mean, don't forget, Social Security wasn't designed for people to be paid 30 years after they retired, because people weren't living into their 90s in relation to that. Right, and and I think, you know, of I, I, I Ed and I saw Bernie Sanders uh, in the last campaign, even before he had decided to run against Hillary in the uh, Democratic primaries. And and his his speech at that time was mostly a relating of of what really is happening in this country, you know, and right. that you've got people saying, oh, everything's great, the economy's fantastic. I mean, the economy's fantastic, and and wage growth is is amping up. You know what wage growth is in the last two years? Three percent. That yeah. means you're not even beating inflation, you know. But that number is bandied around on all the stations that people listen to, including CNN and MSNBC, without any context. You know, 3% for the for the people who are doing the work, and uh, what's the percentage increase over the last two years for the people who do no work, like uh, the president of Boeing? You know, um, <laughs> you know yeah. it, it, that's the reality. Um, and that, that, that's what he used to say. I mean, we're in a situation now where three people – have as much wealth, personal wealth, although one of them now is only half of what he had, um, that Jeff Bezos. Um, yeah. Well, he has a divorce. Right, because he had the divorce, <laughs> right. So now there's four people who have as much wealth as half, the bottom half of wealth in this country. I mean, that's 
ridiculous. And the irony is all three of them are basically seen as neoliberals, Bezos, Gates, and Warren Buffett. Yeah, yeah you, that is interesting. You know, uh, you, you have this thing with the, the college cheating scandal right. with these absurdly rich people out in Hollywood. You know, and this is this is the problem, which is that people are are, are somehow gulled by saying things. Like, oh, well, your wages are going up. You you make ten more cents. I mean, it's nothing. And then, of course, we have to pay fealty to the United States as such a as the greatest nation on earth. It's one of the least happy nations on earth, and it's manifesting in health. It's manifesting in suicide. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, as as you were saying that, I'm thinking there are so many things you could point to that's come out of the government that had unexpected positive consequences. Think about the GI Bill, the World War II GI Bill. They throw in an educational benefit. That really wasn't the intent of the GI Bill. Mm -hmm. But the GI Bill educational benefit was one of the most important things that was done and changed American society because you opened up the great state universities to people who hadn't gone there before. That's right. And you and what are they talking about now? Free tuition. That's what the GI Bill was and is. You're enabling people who could not go to the great universities to be able to now, the extension now with the current GI Bill, people can get all, kinds, all different types of education, um, including acting, including some technical skills for people who have served in the military. And... Those are things that should be should be celebrated. Those are things that should be made clear that this is the, our country at its best, giving opportunities. Um, I mean, you and I have a personal stake. Our one of our grandfathers went to City College, got his got his uh, accounting degree through City College, and look at the people who came through City College and continue to come through City College in relation to that. You know, for a while, didn't they have more Nobel Prize winners than any other college in the United States? Well, the other the other thing to, that needs to be talked about is what capitalism are people talking about? Yeah. Because um, I think, you know, people who are older were raised in the days of what, you know, you could call stakeholder capitalism, which is that the corporations weren't just about, in you know, wealth for themselves and particularly for their uh, management, they were about customers, the employees, their shareholders, and yes. the nation as a whole. Yes. You know, there's, it's funny when you watch some of the great old films from Hollywood, there's an amazing scene in, in the film Dodsworth, the, the opening scene, uh, and Sam Dodsworth, they haven't, if those are not familiar with the great film and great book by Sinclair Lewis, uh, he's, a, he's an engineer who started his own automobile company, mm -hmm. and he sells out so he can retire early. And the opening scene is him walking through his men to say goodbye, and they're taking the hats off and calling him by his first name. It's a very striking picture mm -hmm. of, of that, of that aspect. There was another great scene, if, if people have seen the movie Company Men, a very underrated film. There's a marvelous scene with Tommy Lee Jones and Ben Affleck, and they're walking through an abandoned shipyard in Boston. And Tommy Lee Jones is talking about when they built ships. Mm -hmm. And they, when they built things they could see that were tangible. That's also capitalism. And that's, not, and that's not capitalism in a destructive way. That's when 
you feel a part of what you're producing. When you see things that are tangible, when you see benefits, and you're able to send, you're able to send your kids to college based on the benefits you have, and you have health care that you got because you're a member of a union. You know, that's not anti-capitalism. Right, and I, that's why I agree with you. I think that I don't want another gutless centrist running for the Democratic, uh, you know, being the Democratic candidate, you know, trying to, and led by all the other, you know, elitist Ivy Leaguers who are their consultants, always telling them the same thing, which is never take a chance. Um, you know, we live in we live in a era of a return of the robber barons, and some of those robber barons are liberals. But do you think working for Amazon is substantially different in many ways than working for a mine? I mean, the way they run their workers in those centers, you know, the fulfillment centers. Yeah. And this notion that the only people that matter are the shareholders of a corporation, that is a modern notion whose legal, supposed legal, uh, uh, you know, necessity doesn't exist. It, it, you know, profits have, since the 1970s, since you know, the the Reagan era for the most part. Um, American worker productivity has soared and wages have been stagnant, but profits have gone right up there with productivity. So no one but a, a lead few are getting the advantage of this, of the workers' productivity. Uh, life expectancy in this country is falling. The median family level of wealth is lower than it was 20 years ago. So there's something fundamentally wrong here. And, you know, the untalked about part of this is we spend way too much on defense. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to point that out. Yeah, it's – I mean, look, with 24-hour news, we still don't have much analysis. We still don't have the kind of things you're talking about, this kind of discourse. You, you're not seeing that. You're seeing – I mean, of course, under this administration, I mean, it's a day-to-day crisis. And, um, but these, I still think, and again, maybe, maybe, maybe you and I are showing that, you know, coming out of the sixties and seventies that we still have some beliefs that maybe, I guess maybe are becoming more passe. I still believe that you can explain things. You can talk about things in a way that is understandable. You make it clear how it affects you personally. We are more inclusive than we've ever been. That's what's really weird about this, Charles. Mm. Look at look at the inclusion of all sorts of of you know lifestyles and ethnicities and race. I mean, we've never been this inclusive, and yet we're not seeing that kind of inclusivity in, res- in respect to opportunity, to um, people being part of a dialogue, and. Um, this is an opportunity, but you can't. You, like I, I couldn't agree with you more. If you're terrified of being called a socialist and you don't explain it, then then you're doomed to failure in relation to that. Right. Well, because otherwise you end up just coming off mealy mouth the way Kerry did when he was asked about the Iraq War. Yeah, and you know, it, and again, he talks about it in his book, and um, I, I I can't explain it. I mean, and. Um, I think Americans respect that. I think Americans would respect someone that said, look, that's not what I said. That's not what this means. And let's work through it. But I think you literally list all the things we're talking about and say, okay, do you want this gone? Do you want this gone? Do you want this gone? When you do that and you really make that a bottom line type of thing, um, 
I think a lot of people don't even realize where a lot of these things came from. No, I agree. I agree. And I think the other problem is is that as I felt at the time with you know, at nine eleven, there there are junctures in history that can be watersheds if you have the right people in place. Now we obviously know we didn't in two thousand and one because they had another agenda, which the nine eleven attack, you know, played into. About, I mean, now you have these book titles like uh, 1612, the year the world changed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, these ridiculous, you know, you know, outlandish titles. History doesn't go like that. You know that. History is one step forward, two steps back. Well, but, but, it, nev- it, but it never quite returns to where it was before. Well, but that's, that's, my, that's my question, which is that I feel like we're at that point now, and it has really nothing to do with Donald Trump per se. I, it, we're, we're being governed by amateurs who are simply adopting a, um, a philosophy which is being handed to them by certain corporatists. And this is an opportunity. I mean, even the way the Green New Deal issue has been handled, mm-hmm. which you know I think, again, the Democrats didn't handle very well, but – it's so blatantly, patently obvious that if done well, there is room to create whole new industries which will accommodate people who perhaps cannot be retrained to do other things but could go around in their communities and change you know, the insulation on people's houses and do those sorts of things you know, related to conservation. You know, but instead, we're going backwards to industries that need to just disappear and are disappearing. That's the irony. I mean, for all the talk about coal, it's a disappearing industry. Now there's, what, twice or three times as many people employed in solar than there are in all the coal-related industries around the country. Yeah. So we attack solar to maintain, you know, buggy whip jobs. And, I, I, again, I, I just think we need people who are not amateurs and people with some vision. And we don't need people just simply mirroring back to us what they think we want to hear. Well, what do you think happens when someone who has now achieved almost sainthood status starts his campaign on a site where three civil rights workers were assassinated and tells people government is not the solution, it's the problem? Yes, I understand that. I, I, mean, I mean, and this is now gospel. Mm-hmm. That is not the way those of us who have worked in government understand government. Those of us who have taken the oaths like you and I have. And other people, and there's you know hundreds of thousands of yeah. government workers. Um, and there's a civil service for a reason. Stephen, Stephen, uh, we're going to have to stop as we're getting toward the end of the hour. But I really appreciate you coming on for the entire time. I know you you give, give us an hour out of your busy schedule. So no, this was great. Yeah, no, it was. Thanks, thanks for calling in. So for the, everyone out there, thanks again for tuning in to the Fallon Forum. Uh, this has been Dr. Charles Goldman hosting today for Ed. If you're listening on one of our community-owned station affiliates that rebroadcast the forum, stick around because we've got uh, more conversation to come. And I'd also like to uh, thank our station manager, Juan Rodriguez, uh, producer, Ashley Martinez, and production assistant, uh, Sherry Herdina. This is Dr. Charles Goldman, and this has been the Fallon Forum. See you next week. Again, I'm sitting in for Ed today, and um, we spent most of the hour 
uh, or pretty much all of the hour talking about socialism. Um, and we're going to switch gears here a little bit and talk about uh, climate change, as we often do on this show. Um, but also, um, this is an opportunity for me to uh, give credit to the Trump administration, which is not something we do often on the Fallon Forum. It, as you can see, um, one of the big parts of uh, the Trump administration uh, philosophy is to turn back regulation, which they claim is uh, impeding economic growth. Uh, and they do this, of course, uh, in such a way that it, it totally disregards other issues such as effects on health, effects on climate. And, um, but their single-mindedness is to favor certain industries uh, over others. And as we know, one, of the, one, what, one industry group that gets a lot of attention from the Trump administration is the fossil fuel industry. But they've also gone at this in, in another very subtle way, uh, which is not just to try to appoint uh, lobbyists or other uh, fellow travelers to the regulatory positions to either gut the regulations or simply uh, run agencies that do nothing the entire time uh, that these uh, various agency heads are in place. Uh, they've also kind of figured out a way to use the agencies to undermine the uh, goals of the agencies uh, or the regulatory commissions. And there's, there was an interesting article uh, in the Times, New York Times, uh, a couple, about a week ago, which, of course, went under the radar, as do many things, because most of the news we get is all Trump all the time. And this concerns probably the most progressive state in terms of trying to address uh, fossil fuel damage to the environment, that being California. Now, I think one of the first things that's important vis-a-vis what we just said, is to acknowledge that uh, in spite of their uh, attention to the environment, including uh, managing various uh, endangered species, et cetera, California gives lie to the idea that you can't have a green or a greening economy and be successful. As we know, California represents essentially the fifth largest domestic product of any economy in the world, not just the economies in the United States, but in the world. So you have a highly successful economy, which is able to incorporate, um, in, you know, incorporate attention to trying to keep the environment and improve it. And as we also know, um, it continues to position California continues to position itself as a leader in this, and has come out uh, as a state policy goal to essentially make the electricity grid. Uh, carbon-free within 10 to 15 years. So the story that I'd like to just bring to you today is about a gentleman by the name of Andrew Beal. Some of them, some of you may know him as a high-stakes poker player. Uh, for those of you who watch whatever it is, ESPN 3 or 15 or whatever, where they have the poker tournaments on, I don't know exactly what's so exciting about watching that. But um, he's also a highly successful businessman and although in this case I don't think it really has much to do with this, he's, he was a very prolific backer of the president during the uh, presidential campaign. He, in fact, also in the past provided uh, funding for the president's Atlantic City casinos, which, as we all know, are all completely defunct, as many Trump businesses end up that way. 
So Mr. Beal, um, through his bank, uh, the Beal Bank, bought a uh, natural gas power plant in California, Central Valley, the La Paloma plant, in 2017, um, and he bought it uh, because the plant had fallen into bankruptcy. There was so much excess power production in California from their use of solar, in particular, that even this natural gas plant had become uh, not economical to run, which is extremely interesting because if you if you think about it, natural gas has essentially created a situation where coal is no longer considered really a viable alternative for power production, even just in terms of the acquisition costs and the cost of running coal plants. Um, and nevertheless, in the, in the setting of uh, California's power portfolio, this natural gas plant had fallen uh, into bankruptcy, and he, of course, was able to buy it for a um, very low price. He then, um, and he actually only paid like $150 million, um, which he was able to do with the debt that the plant owed. So he basically laid out very little to no money. So the question was, what was he going to do with this plant? Well, it turns out that he used this as a uh, wedge to make a claim before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And this commission regulates services such as interstate power transmission and the wholesale market for electricity. And also, it has to approve the acquisition of power plants uh, such as Mr. Beal um, had just uh, brokered. So they did approve the, um, the acquisition of the plant. And almost immediately, Mr. Beal then made a complaint to the same regulators, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, that subsidies for solar and wind, which included in um, California rebates for residential solar power uh, systems, and also requirements that the utilities had to have a growing percentage of carbon-free sources of electricity, his claim was that these subsidies and mandates for solar and wind power were unfair, and um, that for that reason, um, he wants the commission to create subsidies for fossil fuel plants. Now, the claim that of Mr. Beal is that he's only asking for this subsidy to be applied to this plant. But, of course, the great fear is that he's, what he's really trying to do is set a precedent that this commission would then use going forward to subsidize other failing plants, in particular failing plants that are coal-based. Um, coal now, needless to say, the, um, the political makeup of the commission is very critical to um, what decision may uh, come out of it in the future. At present, there is um, an even number of Democratic and Republican members, and there's one vacancy left to fill. And this, of course, is where President Trump comes in, because President Trump 
as he does with most of his appointments, only finds the best and the brightest to um, appoint to various uh, technical uh, positions. Or he finds somebody who worked in the industry, usually as a lobbyist for that industry, to serve that function. So the last commission member uh, that was put up in September by President Trump is a gentleman by the name of Bernard L. McNamee, and he is an energy department official who oversaw an abortive effort to uh, basically shore up the coal and nuclear industries. Now, if you want to talk about an industry in which there's a massive amount of subsidies to keep it open, it's, of course, the nuclear industry. Um, the government already, the federal government already guarantees the insurance claims that could be made against these nuclear plants because that alone would make these plants prohibitively expensive to open and construct. Um, almost no new nuclear plant has been started in the United States for various reasons because it really is not an economical way of producing electricity. And of course, the real danger is that we have a myriad of aging nuclear plants, including in California, a plant that sits on an earthquake fault, which is just another Fukushima waiting to happen. So, I mean, there's no question that Mr. Beale is correct that there are industries that are heavily subsidized, but there's no industry more heavily subsidized than the nuclear power industry. The coal, the coal and natural gas industries do not receive direct subsidies, but of course, coal has huge environmental effects including the coal ash ponds in places like North Carolina, um, the fact that living near where coal is transported or burned, uh, respiratory health is uh, markedly uh, affected, and we know that there's excess cancer deaths as well as a huge number of asthma-related issues created by burning of coal, which is then taken care of uh, oftentimes at taxpayer subsidies because oftentimes these plants are in rural areas where uh, because of the poor economy, many of the, many of the people who live there are on some form of assistance for their health care. Um, and natural gas, of course, is, although touted as cleaner, uh, the method by which most of it is procured is through fracking, which the various governmental entities have allowed massive pollution coming off of these fracking wells in the form of methane to go uh, unmitigated to keep the price of natural gas down. So although the subsidies are not of the same type, whereby you might get a tax credit for putting a, a sol solar panels on your house, um, it, it's really not true to say that fossil fuel plants are not being subsidized. Uh, they are in various ways. And in particular, the cleanup of the environmental consequences of these plants is a huge subsidy to these plants. But the, the real question is, what's going to happen here? If the... You know, Part of Mr. Beale's argument is that wind and solar are unreliable and that the, um, the injunction under which the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission operates is to keep the nationwide electrical grid stable and reliable. And his argument is that wind and solar are not reliable and therefore that the commission is not even fulfilling its, uh, its legal mandate to assure that there is always power available. And this, of course, has been a huge argument made by those saying coal plants should stay 
online, as should natural gas plants. Um, this, you know, this of course is somewhat of a straw man because here's a, an economy as huge as California's with a very large population of people who nevertheless are able to run a very uh, efficient grid using uh, renewable power to a great extent, uh, and in particular solar, and to a lesser degree wind. So the, whether that's actually true is certainly not even, it's not even clear it's true now, but going into the future, it may well be less true as finally we get some sort of battery technology that can store the um, electricity created by renewable uh, generation such as uh, wind and solar. So just to, to summarize, uh, this, this case is very much under the radar. It may simply be about trying to make a um, natural gas plant that Mr. Beale acquired for pennies on the dollar, a viable uh, economic uh, entity. Or it could be generalized, particularly with a, a final appointment of another Republican to the Energy Regulatory Commission, it could lead to uh, an assault in, on a nationwide level against renewable energy as being uh, unfairly subsidized and not allowing for a reliable national grid. So this is the Fallon Forum. This is Dr. Charles Goldman. We'll see you next week.